Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 179, and it's part two of the two-part series covering Charles I. Spiesel, the zany accountant from New York who testified at the Clay Shaw trial. If you listen to episode 178 or part one, you know the background. And so we're going to just jump right in. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 179 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Judge Haggerty ordered the jury and all principals in the trial to be taken to the scene, the corner of Dauphine and Esplanade, stipulating that no testimony be given until the trial resumed in the courtroom. With that, the rush was on. Manic spirits were reminiscent of the last day of school in June. The corridor outside the courtroom rang with shouts of, How you going? Want a ride? See you down there. And bring a box lunch. Some of the hanging ladies risked their necks trotting down the marble hall toward the stairway in their high heels. My Simon & Schuster friend John Moraine drove a few of us, including Bruce Egler, a bright young student I had taken on to assist in research, to the quarter in his car. Esplanade is a wide, attractive street divided in the center by a raised grassy stretch planted with trees called the Neutral Ground in New Orleans and it forms the lower boundary of the French Quarter. Dauphine, a much narrower street, intersects Esplanade and runs the length of the quarter to the city's main street, Canal. Court had recessed for this scavenger hunt at 10.30 a.m. By 11, the corner of Dauphine and Esplanade could easily have been mistaken for the scene of a major accident. Traffic was backed up for blocks, and the natives of the quarter In holiday mood anyhow for this Saturday was the beginning of the vast stream of parades that herald the active Mardi Gras season were gathering on the neutral ground in the four corners in ever-increasing numbers. Dog walkers, bicycle riders, teenagers, old folks, and even a few hippies, two or three of whom had just been arrested half a block away and shoved into a police car, which immediately stalled and was given a rousing push-off by some of the crowd, to the accompaniment of a boisterous cheering section. Most of the buildings in that area are laced with balconies, which quickly filled up. Soon the pedestrians were gawking up at the balcony folk, who were gawking down at them. Many had no idea at first what the cause of the excitement was. Clay Shaw's present house, oddly enough, was only several doors up Dauphine from the corner of Esplanade. Strange as it was, this seemed to be pure coincidence. Shaw's place in no way fits Beasel's description of the party apartment, and he had also testified that Clay Shaw was not the host. 
Still, there was something eerie about this mass of humanity gathering within sight of the red door on Dauphine Street. Judge Haggerty, wearing a sporty cranberry-colored jacket, stood up against the side of a building, keeping close watch on the witness, Charles Spiesel, in his well-tailored pinstripe suit and now wearing an extremely dapper gray hat, a near bowler, with a cigar jammed into the side of his mouth at a jaunty angle. Newsmen were aching to get their hands on Mr. Spiesel, but Judge Haggerty was intercepting all comers. One kid of about 19 approached a group of the press. Somebody get murdered? Yeah, a reporter replied. Yeah? Who? the kid asked. Him, the reporter said, jabbing a finger at Spiesel, who was not looking dead at all, but, as usual, extremely pleased to be on hand. By this time, photographers were swarming over the area, taking pictures of Clay Shaw, who stood smoking and talking to his lawyers, friends, neighbors, and reporters on the neutral ground in the corner of Esplanade. When Kirkwood walked up to him, he grinned and said, Isn't this wild? Would you believe it? Kirkwood would agree it was wild and hard to believe. The crowd now numbered over 300. Everyone was present but the jury. Members of the prosecution team stood in front of a building on Esplanade across the street from the judge and the witness. Kirkwood would comment that he had seen them looking happier. Mark Lane was present too, accompanied by the attractive young lady who took notes for him in court. Finally, at about 11.30, the Old New Orleans Public Service had lumbered up. It had been detained, we were told, by one of the parades that had already begun snaking around the streets uptown. Soon the members of the jury were filing out onto the sidewalk. The crowd converged around them. The judge, the witness, Clay Shaw, bailiffs, and lawyers for both sides. Judge Haggerty turned to Spiesel and he said, Lead us wherever you wish, but don't say anything. We will put you on the witness stand later. With that, Spiesel looked across the street to a three-story brick building, the Dauphine Apartments. At 1323 Dauphine, he made for the entrance, followed by the judge, the jury, the lawyers for the prosecution, the defense team, various bailiffs, deputies, and Clay Shaw himself. The press and all of the other spectators were kept from entering the building. They had been in the building a mere two minutes when they were led back out again by Spiesel, strutting like a bantam rooster. He now led them around the corner and into a four-story, pinkish-beige stucco building with two balconies at 906 Esplanade. The group stayed in the building for 12 minutes this time before they trooped back onto the sidewalk. The crowds surged in toward the principals. Diamond looked amused, as did others connected with the defense, and Clay Shaw himself was not looking troubled. Spiesel always presented a pleasant appearance, so it was difficult to tell what he was thinking. Judge Haggerty again instructed him not to say anything until court resumed at 2 o'clock. He then ordered the bailiffs to take the jury to lunch. Spiesel, who had arrived with the judge, was now offered a ride by James Alcock. I would have liked to have been a fly on the inside of the windshield. Clay Shaw drove off with his lawyers, and we all dispersed for luncheon. The afternoon session was short murky and anticlimactic, 
Alcock asked Spiesel if he'd been able to locate the same or a similar building as the one described in his testimony. To this, the witness replied that of the two buildings he'd led them into, the second one was either the one or similar to the building in which he'd attended the party. When Diamond questioned him, the lawyer pointed out several differences between the sketch Spiesel had made of the apartment, along with his verbal description, and the actual building the court had now seen. Then he asked, In respect to 906 Esplanade, wouldn't you say that unless structural changes had been made, you're mistaken? Spiesel said he'd stick by his original testimony. It was quite obvious by now that the state did not want to prolong Spiesel's stay in the courtroom. So, in the early afternoon, he was excused and took his leave up the center aisle with a walk as jaunty as the one with which he'd propelled himself into the courtroom. There was still the trace of a smile upon his face. Court was adjourned early. Kirkwood could not help but toss June and Dick Rolfe a, well, what about that? June Rolfe snorted, and Dick gave me a sick grin. The following Monday morning, when Minute Clerk George Sullivan was recording the state-paid transportation voucher for Spiesel's round trip from New York, he turned to Diamond and cracked, This is one the defense ought to pay for. Although no one knew exactly what testimony was forthcoming from here on out, the opinion was that the district attorney's office must be fairly hard up for witnesses to have flown in Spiesel from New York. His testimony slapped a grin on the proceedings that was hard to erase. Members of the Fourth Estate were quick to catch the spirit. One newsman held up a pad upon which he'd printed P. Shaw, a farce in three acts by Jim Garrison. Limericks increased in considerable volume and graffiti appeared on the men's room walls down the hall from the courtroom. Things like, let's hang the guilty bastard. Then, written beneath it, in another hand, no, let's just elect a new district attorney. Kirkwood was curious to find out how the defense had got on to Spiesel. He had soon learned through the courtroom underground that Tom Bethel, a young Englishman who had worked for Garrison for almost two years before coming to believe that the district attorney did not have a case against Clay Shaw, Tom, who stands at a slouch with his hands mostly in his pockets and has a fascinating off-center gap between two of his front teeth, which gives him a self-conscious but delightful grin once he allows it to break through, later on explained the mysterious information leaked to the defense. I gradually became disenchanted. Sometime in August of 1968, I happened to bump into Sal Panzica at the courthouse. We got to talking in general about what was going on and during our conversation, I somehow let it out that I thought Clay Shaw was innocent. Panzika said, would you want to help us? I told him I thought I would. Sal suggested we have lunch. Bethel grinned and shook his head. I couldn't very well see sitting down in a public place with one of the defense lawyers giving them secrets, so we got into Panzika's car and drove around for a while and talked further. I finally gave them a list of the state's witnesses, which included a brief summary of their probable testimony. I'd written up this memo, so I had access to it. 
Tom Bethel told me the state eventually discovered that there had been a leak of some sort because several of their witnesses had been contacted, the Clinton people and Spiesel. Tom said there were only four other possible sources for the flow of this information under the name of Louis Ivon, James Alcock, Moose Chambra, and a man who'd gone under the name of Bill Boxley and had by that time been fired. When rumors of a lie detector test began circulating in the DA's office, Tom was afraid he would be called upon to go under oath, perhaps before a grand jury, and swear he had not divulged secret information to the enemy. If he did and denied this, he feared that somehow during the trial, someone might implicate him. He would then be a sitting duck for perjury charges. He was even deeper in tricky territory since he had indicated to the defense his willingness to be called as a witness. His conscience, together with his fears of being caught, got the best of him. And on January 14th, he told Louis Ivan what he'd done. Bethel claims Ivan's response was, Tom, you realize this could mean your job. This would seem to have been a remarkably mild reaction considering the gravity of the offense. Ivan called in James Alcock and Tom Bethel gave him points for being extremely understanding. This understanding might not have come direct from the heart. After all, they had a time bomb on their hands and a man who had been privy to the inside workings of the DA's office. They indicated if he did not go to the press and cause a major scandal, he would not be hurt. It was also suggested it might be a good idea if he left town to avoid being called by the defense. Tom felt bad that he had not resigned from the district attorney's office staff after he'd given Panzeca the witness list. But just about that time, the DA's office suggested he stay on at the reduced pay of $200 a month, for which he would only have to put in two days a week. He was finishing a book on the New Orleans jazz man George Lewis, and it was a perfect situation. So he'd remained on the payroll until his confession. It wasn't until January 21st, the day the trial started, that Tom Bethel had a confrontation with Jim Garrison, whom Tom quotes as asking, you don't think I try to convict an innocent man, do you? He then went on at length about his duties and responsibilities as district attorney. Tom Bethel indicated a lingering dollop of affection for Garrison. He told Kirkwood, I must make every effort to meet the district attorney who, he said, was extremely well-read, had an exceptionally retentive mind, and could be, when he chose, completely scintillating. Tom spoke with admiration of his sophistication, his wit, his humor, and his charm. If Tom Bethel is anything, he is loaded to the gills with goodwill. Kirkwood would describe him as entirely naive when he took representatives of the DA's office at their word when they claimed if he did not go public, he would not be harmed. Kirkwood would say that Bethel would later regret this trust. But we'll get to that in a later episode. Wow, what a story. What a character this Charles I. Spiesel was. Everyone agreed that Diamond's questioning of Spiesel was a turning point where, and I quote, the sky fell in as... Alcock would later put it. Until then, it seemed as though the garrison juggernaut was about to flatten Clay Shaw. One has to ask how this could have happened. Was it just shoddy vetting of a witness, or was it a deliberate attempt to skirt things? 
that backfired on Garrison. Garrison sent two assistant district attorneys to New York to interview Spiesel before they made a decision to put him on the stand to testify. When the two assistant DAs returned to New Orleans, one of them said, well, he'd make a great witness, but he's crazy. How crazy was he? He fingerprints his children in the morning to make sure that the federal government hasn't substituted dead ringers in the middle of the night. And that, my friends, should have been crazy enough to keep him off the stand. In his own book, Garrison states that he was in the courtroom when Spiesel made his testimony, and he recounts it in detail in his book, On the Trail of the Assassins. There is some controversy here, as some researchers state that Garrison was not in the room, at least for a portion of Spiesel's testimony. Garrison also states that the choice to put him on the stand was ultimately made by his team and not him, a fact at least indirectly disputed by members of his team based on interviews that were done later with James Alcock. Garrison's account of the impact of Spiesel's testimony is surprisingly candid and sobering. Perhaps his transparency in the book related to this topic was bolstered by his related recollection of having nothing to do with putting Spiesel on the stand. But to be fair to Garrison, as one of Garrison's staff members later wrote, Spiesel's variety of madness seemed unlikely to be exposed. His demeanor was normal. He had a good job. He did professional work. And what defense attorney would think to ask a surprise witness whether they fingerprint their children? Good point. And yes, totally bizarre. Well, I guess, were it not for Sal Panzica's next-door neighbor, this might never have gone the way it did. Perhaps a little redundant, but there is Jim Garrison's account of things in his own words from his book on the Trail of the Assassins. As for the witnesses, we decided to use Jim Alcock, whom I had assigned to be the chief prosecutor and the rest of the special team arranged the order of their appearance and how to handle them. One witness and accountant from New York named Charles Spiesel came to us very late in our investigation and presented us with a dilemma. He claimed to have met David Ferry and Shaw on a trip to New Orleans and heard them discussing the possible assassination of the president. Alcock brought me his statement and asked what I thought about using him. By this time, I had become quite suspicious because of all the tricks played on us. While I could find nothing specifically wrong with the statement, I told Alcock I found it simply too pat. But Alcock decided he wanted to call Spiesel, and since I did not have time to interview the witness myself, I agreed. It was a decision we would soon come to regret. Now, that's an interesting version of what happened, told by Garrison himself. But the truth is that Garrison's office knew it was a crapshoot to put Spiesel on the stand. And even Mark Lane, who was advising Garrison at the time, warned against doing it. He, too, saw a downside of using Charles I. Spiesel as a witness. And the worst-case scenario that could have occurred for the prosecution did indeed occur. And, indeed, the cross-examination by Irv Diamond turned it into the best-case scenario for the defense. Maybe it was just karma, but it was certainly bad craps. Garrison, as the saying goes, had crapped out. Garrison basically felt the same way and said so in his book. He would describe it as follows. The bomb that shattered our case exploded quickly enough. 
His name was Charles Spiesel, the accountant from New York who had belatedly been added to the prosecution witness list. Garrison would go on to say that it was clear to him that the jurors' reactions to the prosecution's presentation of the evidence of the conspiracy in Dallas had made a deep impression. But Garrison himself did not know if they could ever truly recover from the impact of the Spiesel cross-examination. Nevertheless, as Spiesel left the stand, it still remained critically important for the prosecution to link Shaw to the Dallas conspiracy, and much of that was hinged, after the disaster of the Spiesel testimony, upon the roly-poly hippie attorney Dean Andrews, who got the call from one Clay Bertrand. That was, of course, important, based on Bertrand's request for Andrews to represent Lee Oswald in Dallas. And, of course, the most important sub-point of that was that Clay Bertrand was really Clay Shaw. We know the story of Dean Andrews and Perry Russo already from this podcast. And so, as things went south with these few critical witnesses, so went the outcome of Clay Shaw's conspiracy trial. As an important postscript, there was never any evidence produced at trial that Clay Shaw worked for the CIA. We've said that over and over. But many researchers and historians speculate that the significant evidence of that fact some of it known to Garrison at the time, and most of it subsequently revealed in later years, might have made a big enough effect to overcome so many other flaws in the case, not the least of which was the testimony of the little accountant from New York. Thank you for listening to episode 179 of JFK. The Enduring Secret. 